I'm always happy to be coming back to Borderlands. And uh, this is sort of an unusual occasion because I just hung up all these paintings last night. And three of them have to do with the novel I'll be reading from, Turing and Burris, and maybe uh, during the Q&A session. Or as the, at the end of the talk, maybe I'll show you which one. Um, this is a novel I, uh, I wanted to write it for a long time. Uh, I used to teach computer science. And so I'm interested in Alan Turing. And uh, of course, I've been an admirer of William Burroughs' work ever since I was a young boy. I did about 14. For some reason, my brother had a subscription to the Evergreen Review. And that was a magazine that used to publish a lot of beatnik literature. And Burroughs had some. I read an excerpt that made it mention there, and it really impressed me. Uh, and then I just sort of kept reading Burroughs for the rest of my life. And uh, the idea in this book, it started out as a short story. Uh, there's this thing, Alan Turing, you may or may not know, last year was the 100th anniversary of his birthday, so computer science people were excited about that. And uh, he died when he was, uh, I think it was about 42, something like that. And apparently he died of uh, cyanide poisoning. And he was found dead in his bed, and there was an apple that had cyanide on it, and apparently he'd done sort of a, a sleeping beauty sort of suicide. But there's always remained the possibility that it was uh, he was assassinated by the British secret police because he uh, well there are two things he he knew a lot of important secrets because he had been one of the main people involved in this huge code breaking effort in World War II which at that time nobody even knew about it it was just still secret it was to crack the Germans Enigma code that they used to communicate with their submarines and the other thing was that Turing was a homosexual. And he was always, he was completely out about it. Sometimes mathematicians and computer science people, they, they're not really good at dissembling. They, you know, they've figured something out logically, and since it's logical, there's no reason to argue about it or, or hide it, you know. And, and he, he knew he was homosexual, and so he didn't mind telling that to people. And then, you know, sometimes it would, he would even score, so what was the problem, you know? But in, in the 1950s, you know, that's not how they viewed things. If you were homosexual and you knew state secrets, then, you know, they felt like you would be subject to uh, blackmailing. And, and so there's a possibility they assassinated him. So the way this book is set up in the first chapter, he's with uh, one of his lovers, and the, uh, the secret police comes to kill him, and then... They actually managed to poison Turing's lover instead of Turing. And then Turing finds a way. He's been doing some studies of uh, biotechnical computation, biocomputation. And he's found a way to grow a copy of his face and his dead lover's face. And then he puts his face on the lover and puts the dead lover's face on his face. And then he takes off and goes to Tangier to hide out. And once he's in Tangier, he falls into makes friends with William Burroughs. And uh, Turing is still fiddling with his biocomputation tricks, and he's found a way to turn himself into a giant slug. 
and he, they call these things skugs with a K. Uh, it just sounds cooler that way. <laughs> Most evil science fiction things have a K in them. The invasion of the Krull, you know. So, the Klingon. So, anyway, <laughs> he turns Burroughs into a skug, too. So they have fabulous sex. They'll do this sort of, maybe you've ever seen a video of slugs mating. They sort of wrap themselves around each other and hang from the ceiling on a twisted rope of mucus. And uh, they're hermaphroditic, so they really, really have a good time. <laughs> so that's... And then Turing also, he used to talk about this thing called the imitation game, of whether a computer could convince you it was a person if you were talking to it over a, like an instant message thing. And that's, that's even called the Turing imitation game. But there's a different imitation game that he gets into here because he, he decides to you know, morph himself, his body, so he looks like a woman. And he comes to the U.S. and he looks like a woman. And he's going to meet up with Burroughs later on. But then at present he falls in with a group of sort of low-life, sort of early beatnik-type people, sort of marginal people. These aren't famous beatniks, they're just sort of like party animals, sleazy people. And uh, they're doing this road trip, sort of in the style of on the road. And they're heading... Uh, he, he landed, he met up with these people in Florida, but now he's heading... He wants to go to Los Alamos because he has... He's looking ahead and he wants, has this scheme of sort of doctoring a nuclear weapon so that when it goes off, it'll send out scugging rays so everybody on the planet will become a skug. And it's good to be a skug because you're telepathic and you can, you can change the shape of your body. So he hits New Orleans with these friends of his. And one of this man, them is a man called uh, Vassar. And Vassar is under the misapprehension that Turing is a woman. Because whenever Vassar's been around Turing, he's had the shape of a woman. And then uh, there's Vassar's wife, his long, long-suffering wife. And she's a composer, an electronic composer. And then uh, there's another guy. And uh, I can't remember who it is right now, but we'll, we'll find it when I start reading it. Because I just started to pick this more or less random spot to start reading it. So I don't remember exactly what's going to happen here that well. So uh, here we are on page 123. Oh, yeah, Ned is the other guy. That's right. He's from Kentucky. <laughs> He's not. <laughs> Terry Business from Kentucky. Well, Jennifer Lawrence. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, I'm from Kentucky too. <clears throat> that picture there—that's the Kentucky artist, the fat guy with his shirt untucked. And, uh, that's the self-image of a Kentucky artist. So, uh, anyway, so here we go. Uh, it was wet dawn, so they've just pulled into the French Quarter in New Orleans. And I'll, I won't read for a terribly long time. Usually people enjoy the Q&A more anyway. So I'll read for like 15 or 20 minutes. It was a wet dawn, still dark, the air filled with mist. They were in the French Quarter among two-story buildings, very human in scale, with ironwork balconies supported by slender columns. A few of the town's legendary bon vivants were passing by, only now making their way home. A lean man with a cyst the size of a golf ball on the side of his face was singing the pop song that Alan had heard in Madeira, Earth Angel. 
He moved his hands as if he were swimming the breaststroke, dancing his way home. A gray-haired man in jeans and a billed cap was loading an eight-foot wooden cross into the back of his pickup truck, his night's preaching done. The cross bore the insignia, repent, along its crossbar, the letters read and smeared. At the end of the block, a silky-voiced pitchman was cozening people into an upstairs after-hours bar. That's Zachary, isn't it, said Susan. This is the building where we stayed, remember, Vassar? We had this wonderful room on the ground floor facing the garden and back. A little paradise. Hey, Zachary, brother Squonk. Square and root, said Zachary, a dark-skinned, well-knit man with tight curls. It's Susan Green and Vassar Lafia. What you got for me, Vassar? Smoke off the boat, said Vassar, straight from the Sultan. Can we get the room by the garden? The love suite, said Zachary, vacant as of an hour ago. The night's dark suck and push is done. It's a spang new day. Feed my head and go to bed. Enjoy, said Vassar, passing Zachary a lump of hash. Can we uh, score some sandwiches from upstairs, too? Muffatellas? Is the kitchen open? I'll order two for you, said Zachary, examining Vassar's offering. And a six-pack of regal lager, continued Vassar. Ned and I don't drink alcohol, put in Alan. Now, keep in mind, Alan looks like a woman right now. Me either, added Susan, most of the time. Ginger ale for the others and regal lager for me, amended Vassar. I'm on a spree. We'll see, said Zachary, pocketing his hash. Still playing with the acousmatics, Susan? That's what they used to call electronic music. Acousmatics, Susan? Feed my ears. What's the latest? Bulldozer at the dump, said Susan, in her flat, title-reciting tone. Wrong supermarket. What it's like to be dead. Orgasm anyway. God waters. I brought them all. She makes them mostly by collaging together. Found sounds. This afternoon we'll jam. Your tape, my sax, and Nebuchadnezzar with this monstrous bass. Maybe Long John on the drums. Welcome to the Chateau La Pompe, y'all. The room was sizable and well used with overflowing ashtrays, empty bottles, and an enormous unmade bed. A door opened onto a dim garden, faintly green in the burgeoning dawn. Feeling awkward, Alan found a trash can and tidied up. Ned got clean sheets from the cupboard and remade the bed. The food and drinks arrived. The little company recharged their energy. Let's bounce, said Vassar now, bundling Susan and Alan onto the sheets. You too, Ned, said Susan, wriggling out of her shirt and pants. Kiss me down low, sailor boy. I know you want to. Be my slave. Susan, I don't know if, began Vassar, his voice suddenly thin and righteous, even though himself was jiggling Alan's large bare breasts. In for a penny, in for a bound, said Susan, like Abby says. So now they got into it, side by side. Vassar began hungrily pushing into Alan with short, quick thrusts, just like they'd done aboard the steamer they'd ridden across the ocean. Alan reveled in the sense of being so easily penetrated, and Vassar had good staying power. Meanwhile, Susan straddled Ned, rocking against him, had an orgasm, and switched to riding his car. Sorry. Vassar kept looking over at Susan. He was aroused and somehow wistful. Alan rocked his womanly hips, wanting Vassar's full attention. Ned began to moan a series of rising notes. Pulling into rough sync, the four of them rushed the summit to, in unison. Kaboom! In the charged silence that followed, Susan slid off Ned and began kissing Alan on the mouth, thrusting in her tongue. He rather enjoyed this. 
Susan's antic creativity almost made up for her being a woman. Meanwhile, the overheated Ned, empowered by his scug, grew stiff again. He mounted Susan and plunged into her again. That's my wife, protested Vassar at this point, not some hired party girl. Oh, hush, Vassar, said Susan, her voice tight and fast. I'm into this now. Ned's the man. She let out a ragged laugh. Let's yodel like we're in the Alps. I said it's enough, snarled Vassar. He sat up and shoved Ned so hard that the taller man rolled off the bed onto the floor. Time to zap you, said Ned, weary and annoyed. He swarmed across the bed with his limbs like the bluntly flexing arms of a starfish. He elongated a finger and drilled it into Vassar's forehead, scugging the man on the spot. See, if you're a scug, you can poke somebody and turn them into a scug as well. So it's like, you know, the aliens converting people. Where Vassar had been all knotted aggression a moment before, now he was languidly draped in a posture of noble ease. Ned withdrew his finger, the hole in Vassar's brow healed over, and the drops of spilled blood sank into his skin. Susan, shocked silent by Ned's assault, now found the breath for a scream. Ned abruptly scugged her as well, hooking his thumb into her temple. Perhaps Alan could have intervened and stopped Ned, but he didn't care to. He was too fascinating by watching the situation unfold. And by now, he was fully behind the scug's cause. A moment later, Susan had healed over two. The four of them were in teep contact. That is, their scug-sensitized brains were exchanging subtle, phase-modulated electromagnetic waves, telepathy. Alan focused on Vassar, his rough-cut dream book. Vassar was in his own world, staring at his hands, bending his fingers in odd ways, unsystematically exploring the qualities of his altered form. His inner mind was more oddly organized than Alan had realized before. The man's flashes of wit emanated not from chains of reason, but from surreal juxtapositions. A pair of images would collide and stick, and that would be the next thing that Vassar said, heedless of any precise meaning. And then somehow a meaning would emerge. He had a great ability to turn off his inner filters. What Vassar thought, Vassar said, and Alan could now perceive more clearly than before, Vassar was somewhat unsure of himself. He knew full and well that, on the new world's terms, he was an ineffectual wastrel. Far from glory in this, he nursed an abiding sense of regret. Astral radio rates you, Vassar suddenly exclaimed, as if reacting to Alan's not entirely laudatory thoughts. Astral radio rates you. Instinctively, Vassar now veiled the deeper parts of his mind. This is wild, he added, playing the rogue once more. I like how you're staring at my dick, Abby. Abby is what Alan calls himself in, when he's a woman. We'll grow comfortable with each other's inner ways, said Alan. It would only be a matter of minutes till Vassar saw down into the sexual secrets in Alan's mind. For now, Alan turned his attention to Susan, who was gazing at Ned with a sea of stories in her eyes. Susan's mind reminded Alan of when, as a boy, he'd creep into his mother's closet with its clutter of veils and feminine armatures, a place of mysteries. In Susan's head, sinuous melodies and sprung rhythms mingled with remembered voices and ambient noises, the slam of a door, a cough, the burbling of a percolator. Everything was in flux and under revision, as in some tootling cartoon landscape where every object joins in a communal jig. Susan was nothing like so blithe as he thought. Her psyche has countless icons of how she had at various times imagined herself to appear from the outside. Her every utterance was a bravura performance to be pondered and stored. 
Perceiving opinions were to some extent in quote marks, embroidered on samplers, in mock serious knotty pine frames. Her actual opinions were harder to discern. It's okay, isn't it? Ned was saying to Alan aloud, that I scugged them. We're four strange bedfellows, said Alan, but yes, we need a team if we're to spread the scugs worldwide. Complete global mastery, huh, said Vassar. Am I on board? Oh, sure. Can I be um, the Duke of Jersey City? And I'm the Duchess of Queens, added Susan. Royal mutants on the prowl. Saying this, she twisted the last word into a musical tone and warbled the sound up and down, her voice velvety. She stretched her arms like boneless tentacles, wrapping the four of them in a group hug. All friends now? Even though you guys have destroyed our lives? I hope this doesn't wear off, said Vassar. I can stop even pretending to look for a job. <laughs> we'll change the world forever, said Alan. Whoa, said Alan, said Vassar, still sorting out the fresh scraps of data he was finding in Ned's and Alan's brains. You're the same loser, Ned, who was on the ship? And hold it. The Abbey thing was a drag act? I've been boning a woman, a man? I'm not even William Burroughs, said Alan. I'm Professor Alan Turing from Manchester. <laughs> you might as well wear your real faces, boys, said Susan. Let us see how you look. Yes, Alan was dead sick of his imitation games. With a sudden flicker of his will, he was once again wearing his original Alan Turing form, the first time since Christmas morning in Tangier. And Ned was back to looking like he had on the ship. Alan, not Abby, said Susan softly. Quite handsome. The timid Prince Charming awakens from his spell. And Ned, you look even better this way. How do you feel, Vassar? asked Alan. I, I don't suppose you'll love me now? I'll still run with you, big guy. I've got no problem with queers, but... You'll find the great right man, Alan, said Susan. Vassar isn't the right man for anyone. He's a stopgap measure, even for me. Still naked, she cocked a roguish eye at her husband. And now that I can keep his complete record of mortal and venial sins... I like seeing your brains insides too, interrupted Vassar. It's like I've made it into my teenage girlfriend's lacy bedroom with the picture of a horse on the wall. <laughs> we'll get all snugly and lovey-dovey. What do you say? A new leaf? I can be cozy if you treat me right, said Susan. I've always gotten a thrill from you, Vassar. You know that. She turned to Ned, who was rubbing against her leg. Back off, Cad. I don't even know you. My dear wife, said Vassar. He yawned and sagged. Curl up with me, Susan, and we'll zonk some Zs. I feel like I just had brain surgery. Or something. I'm perky, said Susan. Jazzed. Oh, I'm for a snooze, too, said Ned. Let's merge in a mound. This'll be good for you, Vassar and Susan. Alan can pass you a wetware upgrade to take off the rough edges. Alan hung back, feeling himself on the outside once again. He feared that none of these three people would ever want to make love to him in a human way. Oh, stop feeling sorry for us, for yourself, and merge with us, Alan, exclaimed Ned, sensing his friend's thoughts. This won't be mere sex, Ned added, for Vassar's sake. It'll be scugger conjugation. Very intense, very good for you. Alan is improving his metabolism all the time, and he'll share what he's got. The man's a genius, a mad scientist, the bull goose wetware programmer in chief. So urged on by Ned and Alan, the four of them piled up. Guided by Alan's teeth, their tissues began to melt and flow 
with tendrils from each body digging into the flesh of the scuggy flesh of the others. Alan was thinking of a topological paradox in which four endlessly ramifying solids share a single border. But quickly the merge switched from the theoretical to the experimental. In some ways it was like sex without being focused on the genitalia. They see 